Hey guys, do you have a screenplay you need feedback on? Well, you are in luck. I, Julio, the half of the contrarians that speaks with an accent, I'm doing official screenplay coverage now. And if you're a listener of the show, you'll get a discount. Just email wearethecontrarians at gmail.com and tell us which is your favorite episode of the podcast and why. Turnaround is about two weeks and you'll get detailed notes that are even more thorough than what we do in the show. Although it'll also be less funny. For more information, email wearethecontrarians at gmail.com or visit our website, wearethecontrarians.com, and click on the Julio Reads Your Scripts link. Your voice is beautiful. All my life, all I ever wanted was to be a wrestler, fighting in the ring, winning that belt. And so I dreamed every night that I was the Undertaker, smashing skulls in. Welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. Be sure to check out The Contrarians on iTunes, where you can rate, review, and subscribe. We're also on SoundCloud, and don't forget about our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Be sure to keep up with the pretentious ramblings of Alex and Julio on Twitter, at JamesAlexMattis, and at Ovnio. That's O-V-N-I-O. Time for the podcast. Okay, we are recording. We are, and hello, and welcome back to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. Of course, my name is Alex, joined as always by Julio. Julio, uh, I'm a bit mad at you right now. I just looked at myself in the mirror and saw that it looked like an absolute train wreck, and you had not brought this to my attention during any point of our watching the film that we're covering today. Well, I figured uh, between friends, <laughs> it doesn't matter. I, I, I can look past the surface, Alex. Gotcha. Much like Mike Douglas in the movie that we're going to explore You this are time. the Mila Kunis to my Justin Timberlake, and I thank you for that. Um, but we are here to round out, to finish the uh, quartet of the Contrarians visiting show business. Uh, we started in Hollywood uh, for a double dose, and we conclude here on Broadway, much like our previous episode. Um, we're here to visit a chorus line starring the aforementioned Mike Douglas uh, chorus line, uh, the film adaptation of the 1976 Tony Award winner uh, Broadway show. Um, now, this, much like uh, Entourage, we're kind of doing this in two parts here. This was a, a, an adaptation that wasn't met with so much praise. And now, wait, you know, I just had, just now that you mentioned the year that the play started, so it was like 79, you said? 76. 76. It, it started in 75. 76 is when it won its Tony. Right. And then, and the movie is mid 80s, 85. 85. Right. So, and I mean, you watch the movie and you're like, this is clearly the 80s. Yes. And, right. And the show, obviously, there's no way that they would have known what the 80s was going to be like. So, the show, I would imagine when it opened on Broadway and won the Tonys, that was like a 70s show. Yeah. So my little theory is like there was such a huge culture shock for somebody that saw the show in the seventies and then suddenly seeing it adapted for the eighties. I mean, it's the the clothing, the hair, the the Mike Douglasness of it, the the updated nature of it, right? Which is like it's funny to be referring to the eighties as an update 
yes. now in the year 2017. But back then, for somebody that was used to the ways of the 70s, that's gotta be that's gotta be crazy. This uh, was not a nostalgia act. Oh no, no, this was a leap forward into the future. Lots of not a lot of reviews. It's an old movie. Uh, but most of them have the green splotches, uh, starting with Kevin Carr from 7M Pictures, who says, probably worked much better as a live production. Probably, Kevin? <laughs> Is that how you kind of hint at the fact that you haven't seen the original material? Uh, Emmanuel Levy from EmmanuelLevy.com says, misconceived and poorly executed by director Richard Gandhi Attenborough. So that his middle name is Gandhi, is that he directed the movie Gandhi, uh, who turns the Broadway smash hit musical into a total bore. That's a really weird way of uh, crediting him with Gandhi, though, putting it in between his first and last <laughs> right. name. Not to be confused, his middle name is not Gandhi. Yeah, and it's not that they called him Gandhi like at the production. That's, that's <laughs> it wasn't his nickname. Him. No. Uh, Sarah Chauncey from Real.com says they should have just left it on Broadway. So that's like three quotes in a row that just cannot get past the fact that this is not the Broadway show. Mm-hmm. Even the guy that didn't see the Broadway show, he's like, I bet you the he Broadway just show. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which, I, I mean, come on, judge a movie on its own terms. Uh, but finally, oh no, we have two more. Uh, there is uh, one more that says James Sanford, Kalamazoo Gazette, says, Astonishingly, it throws out just about everything that made the show a classic. So one more that didn't. Uh, couldn't let go of the stage version. But then finally, Bill Chambers from, from Film Freak Central says, you'll be crying uncle long before those gams are flashed. <laughs> what, Bill? <laughs> All right. I just came here for the boobs. That's a but... lot squeezed in there. Uh, but again, it is based present day. It is based in 1985 uh, on Broadway in New York City. Um, the first character I believe we do see is Larry, played by Terrence Mann, who's basically the head choreographer for the the presentation at hand. We don't really get a name of the play. There. Yeah, and we've been doing this show for so long, I guess, now that we're in sync, and we both went the poor man's Tim Curry <laughs> right away. It was just, it was uh, clairvoyance. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but again, it's a big gaggle of dancers auditioning for this play in Broadway. Um, now, it's... A pretty long and really well choreographed opening shot. It's uh, pretty fascinating because they're kind of cycling people in and out. And, you know, this movie whittles us down to, I believe it's uh, 16 or 16. so. The Sweet 16, as it were. But in the beginning, we just have this giant group. And they're, it's an impressive bit of filmmaking, the way it's presented. And, you know, you're cycling all these people in and out. And everyone's in sync with one another. And obviously, they're auditioning for a play. But what we see, the aesthetic as the viewer, is quite pleasing. Yeah, it's uh, it really. I think it puts you in show business. It puts you in Broadway, and obviously, regular people like you and me, we have no idea what that's like. We don't know. We just whenever we go to a show, uh, we just see the end result. And this is not even the rehearsals. This is the auditioning process, and it looks exhausting. It's peeling the curtain way back. Yes, yeah, you're going like all the way to the beginning. Uh, if they went any further back, it would be just like Mike Douglas being born or something. <laughs> uh, this is, uh, yeah, you see people rotating in and out. There's like a lot of energy, and it, it, here's like the thing that I found the most refreshing probably is that other than Michael Douglas as a director, we don't know anybody here. No. And and that's how it should be because this is just Broadway and not even like a Broadway show that's popular. It, this is uh, just uh, – I mean in the universe of the movie, this is just an audition. So this is where you'd go if you're an unknown 
And for this portion, this opening portion especially, Mike Douglas is a lot like Ed Harris in the Truman Show. He's just kind of isolated and in the dark. And Yeah, you, you know, see a silhouette yeah. all the way in the background. Yeah, I, I like that because this is uh, it's a movie about the nobodies, mm-hmm. so to speak. So that, that was good that there weren't any, any big names that would distract you from uh, – from the story, uh, the only big name is Mike Douglas, who is supposed to be a big name because he's supposed to be a big name director in yeah. the in the story. I was gonna say we keep me- mentioning Mike Douglas, and we are uh, he is the he's directing the play, uh, he's putting it together, and uh, he's simply known as Zach. He's kind of like Prince in this, and that only he only has one name. Um, it's Zach, and a lot of the dancers are talking to one another about how much of an asshole he is, and um, one of the characters that comes to be one of the Sweet Sixteen, Sheila, says, you know. I wouldn't put up with it, but he's so goddamn talented. Uh, yeah, and he, I, I think right off the bat, it just shows the nature, the cruel nature, unforgiving nature of show business, where basically, yes, Douglas is an asshole and he's non nonsense kind of director, but that's kind of how, just how it is. Mm-hmm. So when you have thousands of people applying for for these roles who are not even like starring roles they're like just the background the chorus it's just the chorus right and you have that point is nailed home (laughs) yes (laughs) you have crowds of people lighting up to audition for him and it's like okay well the first thing that's going to cut you out is if you can't handle mike douglas on a bad day then you shouldn't be in show business Mm -hmm. and and i like that that's something that's shown from the beginning it's not that they get uh poor man's tim curry for you know several weeks and then when finally Mike Douglas comes in, they're like, oh, no, I can't handle this. No, they are put in with Mike Douglas right from the beginning. They're put in the fryer. And the whittling process begins. They're getting them down to the, the 16 that would be, you know, moving on to the next round. As, um, you know, this play is known for many famous songs, but God, I hope I get it, definitely being one of them. Um, and we begin hearing, like, the inner dialogue of a lot of these characters thinking about how bad they need this job. Yeah, were you nervous at this point in the movie that you were not going to be able to keep up with the characters? Because, you know, and not just when we're as we were recording the podcast, but even as as you were watching the movie, because you know when you have hundreds of dancers and they all kind of look the same, they have the same eighties aesthetic. Yes. So I can say, okay, that's a guy, that's a girl. After, but you know, after five minutes of seeing them cycling, I'm like, I can't keep up. So when they start, we start getting like their inner thoughts. I I was wondering how the filmmaker was going to make them stand out. It was going pretty fast. Yeah. And, you know, uh, fortunately, the movie kind of explains to you who you're supposed to care about before too long. So The, the ones that get the solo numbers. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, you know, the guy who found Jurassic Park knew what he was doing here. So he, he establishes uh, right off the bat. Uh, now, once it's whittled down to the Sweet 16, um, they're all, you know, trying to impress Zach at this point. And none of them can be real, and this causes one of many of Mike Douglas's meltdowns throughout the course of this film, and that he's just kind of angry that no one can just you know present themselves as a normal human being. Yeah, this is a this is a, at the core, I think, of what makes this movie so awesome, uh, and that is uh, that it basically it should be a chorus line, and then the tagline is "fucking actors." <laughs> Because it just it spends most of its running time showing you that actors, they're just wired in a certain way that you cannot have a sincere conversation with them. Yeah. He very specifically from the top tells them, do not act. I just want to get to know you because he's having – that's his process right now. He's going to cast people that need to be not just great dancers but also actors. He's going to build the story around their personalities. And right. And so he he's like, I don't want you to act. I just want you to open up and tell me about yourself. 
And then they just proceed to spend the rest of the movie like dancing their feelings out. It's like that's not <laughs> what he asks you. And you get the you get constant cuts to Mike Douglas's reactions, and he just keeps like rolling his eyes. And it's like these fuckers, they cannot. That's the problem with actors, you know. If you're a director, I guess you know can't live with them, can't live without them. Yeah. <laughs> so you're just gonna have to manage with what you get. But he's the voice of reason and the, the stern hand of uh, authority, and you know. He he tries to explain to them, this is what, if you want to succeed here, this is what you need to get. And so when they don't, it causes a backlash on his end. Um, this does segue into us meeting, I don't know, would you call her the protagonist of this? It, I don't know, because, I mean, does she have an arc? I don't know that she has the arc. And I always go, like, protagonist would be the one that has the arc. Mm-hmm. And But, uh, I mean, who has the arc? Mike well, this is where one of the fan. I think, well... You would think so until the end, but <laughs> it's one of the fascinating things about this story is uh, we bring in Cassie, uh, Allison Reed, who um, immediately meets uh, Kim, who is the secretary of, uh, or assistant rather, of Zach, uh, played by Sharon Brown. Now, the significance being Kim immediately recognizes Cassie uh, as, you know, a very famed dancer who's returned here. And you can tell right off the bat, they establish the mood and the, the filmmaking is such that, you know, we said we had a bit of trouble keeping tabs here on who to pay attention to, but you can tell there's a history between Cassie and Zach. Yeah, and this is way before you even get into flashbacks that really confirm mm-hmm. that. But it's like the fact that she gets her own entrance apart from everybody else and that she's recognized by by the assistant and then later by the – I guess Tim Curry is like what? His assistant director probably, right? Is, I guess he's like the head choreographer. The head choreographer. There you go, yeah. Um, so she is there to audition for the chorus and she's immediately shut down on this. Just a no go right off the bat. And, you know, that segues into a bit of the previous tension, but a lot of it is Zach doesn't want to cast her on a chorus line because she's a star. Yeah. He thinks that she's better than that, but it also, you can tell there's more to it. I mean, he, why would he care specifically about her mm-hmm. when there's other dancers there, uh, like Sheila that he obviously knows because he he's on a first name basis with her. Yeah. You know, and so you know that there's more history to that. Uh but of course uh she doesn't go away. She gets sent away several times during the movie. <laughs> oh yeah, she definitely you know, she's never heard the expression going to the well once too often. She, no, no, it's hashtag she persisted. She just hashtag squeaky wheel gets the grease. Yes. She keeps coming back for more. Um, now this is kind of where we get some of the internal dialogue, more internal dialogue, I should say with the cast and really exposes the audience to the uh, insecurities that the cast members have, you know, they're all excited to be there, but they all have their own shit that they're dealing with. So, you know, this internal dialogue doesn't last the duration of the film, but I think the spots that it's chosen to be inserted really adds a lot as, um, it's coming from the perspective of a viewer. Yeah. And I, well, and I like that it's like. Yes, there are people that get their solo numbers, but then there's just as many group numbers where it's like almost like everybody's thinking the same thing, which puts you in the, in the mindset of, oh, well, all these people, they have so much in common. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like they all have the same fears. When they get singled out, they also have their own baggage that's very unique to each of them. But they're also at the same time all worried about the fact that they're just kind of disposable and Mike Douglas holds the power in that theater. Well, and even only half of them are going to make it to the actual chorus line. Right, so. yeah. He's, he said four guys, four women. That's what he's picking. So we come back. You know, We're going to try this one more time about meeting the cast, and everyone's a bit looser and uh, a bit more open now, so we're starting to meet, um, you know, get to, down to the meat and potatoes, as it were, a bit more here. And 
the main two that stick off are uh, Mark and Sheila. You know, we've talked about Sheila so far. Mark is a dancer who stated that, uh, you know, he went with his bigger sister to all her dance lessons and he realized he could do that too. Just a classic case of sibling rivalry. But, you know, out of the those selected, they seem to have the two biggest stories off the bat of... Um, Right. Okay. I'll see. Without looking at notes, mm-hmm. like how many of the of the sixteen can you remember? Uh, there's Mark, Sheila. So Mark is the guy that had the sister. Sheila is the woman that's older mm-hmm. than everybody else. She mm-hmm. says she's like she just turned thirty, but mm-hmm. she's lying, right? <laughs> yes, that's the joke. <laughs> and that's, that's well, it was the eighties. Said with a wink and a nod with uh, Mark, uh, Mike Douglas. Excuse me. Um, Val. Who's Val? The blonde. Which blonde? The one that has her own number later about her... The plastic surgery? Yes. Okay. Uh, her fake Snavensons. Um The married couple. There's the, the one married that... couple. There's Paul. Who's Paul? San Marco. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> You're telling me like I know them by name. The, to... uh, Paul is the, the guy... sex guy. The sex guy. No. Uh, his, his big numbers about sex now? Um, Paul is the guy who like did the um, the gay club dancing and his parents were... They oh, okay, him. okay, yeah. yeah. Um, there's the other gay guy. Oh, well, Paul makes me remember that the the, the other Puerto Rican, because Paul... Morales. Morales, yeah. yes. And then there's um, Wong, because she says, always Wong, never white. God, that's genius! <laughs> I mean, if I was Mike Douglas for the cast, you could. You're you're good. Stand aside. You know you're exempt. Down down to seventeen. Um, um and then uh, the black guy. Yeah, I was the guy. I'm trying to remember his name too because it's about Richie. Richie is his name. I had to look at my notes for that one. Um, but then there's the other blonde girl that had like the mental issues. Right, the one that's like a really good dancer. Mm-hmm. They never criticize anything about her. I mean, there has to be at least, because we've listed, like, what, maybe 10? Yeah. And I think that there's a few that they never get the spotlight. There's the guy who's a waiter that's, like, agitated. Like, yes. He's yeah, spending so much right. time there. Um, But, again, the stories of those we're supposed to care about are established. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I think that it's, 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 a very, it's very interesting to just, like, you know, you list them, and it's like, yeah, these sound like individual characters. And, and even then, like, when you look at them, you can really see the diversity mm-hmm. that's that's there on the screen that I think accurately represents Broadway and the theater rather than, you know, as opposed to filmmaking in Hollywood and yeah. where you'd be more likely to, like, whitewash and, and just cast, like, young white people. Yeah. Yeah, but here you have – it's just an eclectic group uh, of just, like, in, as far as, like, age, ethnicities, appearance uh, – there's the seventeen year old boy who just wants to be a part of a dancing group. That's true, yeah. I think that's the that's the one that I was thinking about, the sex story. That's right. And then the really wide eyed young white girl that is literally wide eyed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, but I think that watching it, I was like, this is I guess no matter who he picks, he's gonna pick he's gonna have an interesting lineup. Yeah. You could take any combination of those people and still have a pretty fascinating um uh, team as it were a very interesting chorus line (laughs) now kind of goes back to the wanting more realism zach's trying to get you know some real talk as it were out of his cast and we get a musical number from the girls about how much the ballet meant to them and kind of inspired them 
and this segues into a discussion about sex with the men and basically how that uh, structured their life and their journey as to where they are today. I did find it uh, humorous here that when the men are talking about their different sexual escapades, it cuts to the female characters who are just kind of daydreaming and thinking in their head about what they're going to do. And um, and that's just a really fun kind of comment in general because, you know, that's just a really humorous observation. All men think about is sex and women kind of have their own thing going on. Yeah, but also, and I think that it's it's great because it shows that it's, I don't know about the show, the the actual show, but the movie, I think it's making probably. the point. <laughs> probably. Uh, the movie is making the point that they're always acting. So I think that all these stories that they tell, all these songs that they perform for Mike Douglas, even though it's supposed to come from the heart and it's supposed to explain who they are as a real person, they're still just they're put-ons. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so all these all these key moments, these revelations that they have, the, the experience, it's all fake. And Michael Douglas can see through that, that yeah. which is why you, we keep getting the, the cuts to him not being amused or sometimes smiling at something that he shouldn't be smiling about. But it's because I think that he can tell, oh, this is bullshit. And uh, so there's all these outrageous stories that the guys tell, like the black guy that said they had sex in a, in a graveyard. Yeah, that leads to our next musical number. Richie, uh, Greg Burge, uh, he just kind of busts into dance and sings a song called Surprise talking about his sexual escapades in a graveyard. Uh, to go a couple paces back, though, to what you were saying in terms of Mike Douglas, you can gauge when he thinks something's accomplished by when he actually lights his cigar that he has. Because <laughs> he has that throughout the duration of the film, but he only lights it and takes a puff every couple of times. So you can gauge, you know, if you're watching at home, you know, mark it down on the scoreboard. He thinks something real has happened when he right. lights it up and takes a drag. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know... From this really over-the-top musical number about sex and surprise, surprise, this is kind of when it does start to get more real. This is where Mike Douglas does light up his cigar, and it starts with uh, Diana Morales. Um, she recognizes Wong from you know going to acting school together, and she goes into a bit of a song about acting school and um, what it taught her and what it didn't, and also how it kind of numbed her to the realness of the world. And this is where it does kind of turn that corner into where you can see from Zach's perspective, who's going to be worthwhile to cast in this. Yeah, there is that is a key reaction shot from Douglas because her song, you know, it's about her her acting teacher and how he keeps trying to tell him to feel stuff and she can't do it, she can't fake it, and then he finally tells her that she sucks. Mm-hmm. And then her big realization is that, no, I don't suck, the teacher sucked. Yeah. And then, I don't know, sometime later the teacher died and she says that she felt nothing. And then they cut to Mike Douglas's face, and he's like, this is a psychopath. <laughs> it was actually the shot of McConaughey watching the videos back and forth in Interstellar, where yes. Mike Douglas is crying more and more. Uh, from there, we move on to Val Clark, the aforementioned Val Clark, uh, played by Audrey Landers. Now, her musical number is about her upstart career, how she was always classified as uh, Dance 10 Looks 3. Until she had some genetic enhancements, the song is actually um, the title of the song is "Tits and Ass," but in the playbill they would put "Dance Ten Looks 3. But the yeah, the actual yeah chorus is "Tits uh, and Ass." I read they did that to one. They obviously didn't want to put in the playbill that there was a song titled "Tits and Ass," and then two, it helped make the punchline of that song funnier to audiences watching the play. Um, but yeah, just basically about. Uh, and this is a bit of ahead of its time, you know. This was something that really just recently came into prevalence, but this movie 
this play, you know, this overall story, a bit ahead of its time, acknowledging that, you know, this poor girl had to go out and genetically alter her body to get more roles. Right. She. This is a talented dancer by all accounts, and yet it's just that she didn't have enough curves, I guess. Mm-hmm. And, and so, yeah, it's, it's it's hitting a funny song in the middle of a play that's not about this, but, but it's, it's about still criticizes. Right. Yeah. It it suddenly takes a, a, a very pointed jab at just plastic culture at the, you know just appearances and superficiality in show business now we go on to paul san marco um who we mentioned before he's one of the younger cast members not the youngest there's the 17 year old kid who again we apologize for not having these names written down but man this thing comes at you fast you got to keep up yeah uh but paul's not really willing to share anything about himself and then mike douglas is just like all right fuck it i gave you the opportunity i'm moving on to the next one <laughs> Um, at this point, the married couple, you know, they're tired of standing up the entire time they're there, and they ask to take five. Mike Douglas excuses them for a five. Um, now, at this point, Cassie is back for more. She's she's back for, for just to give him a piece of her mind. She's been rejected twice by this point. And she's uh-huh. back just to say, you know, um, I'm sorry. You know, I haven't worked in over a year. And then breaks into her musical number about, you know, uh, let me dance. We made a lot of money together when I did before. And Mike Douglas's whole, Zach's whole reason behind this is, no, you're too good. You can't just be, you know, a, a backup dancer. You can't be in the background. You need to be in the front. Now, while all of this is going on, we get kind of a montage of their love. And you can see that on a previous play, he had cast her and then they had fallen for each other. Yeah, and- the sparks happened uh there's this really a- really weird shot very surreal where she is dancing by herself i guess she's rehearsing practicing uh in in that on the dance floor she's surrounded by mirrors mm-hmm. and then mike douglas comes in and he's like wearing a robe <laughs> like he just came out of the shower <laughs> he has it, his pipe too yeah and it was like so is are they at his place did he shower at the dance studio? What happened? And then I realized, oh, no, this is all happening in their heads. So, of course, this didn't really happen. It's just more like a a, a mashup of, of things, you know, her dancing, their it, relationship. It laid the framework for the opening montage from Up, though, like the different interactions in their life. Absolutely. Because the way that this depicts true love in such a short amount of time, I think that so many movies later would reference this. Like, you're thinking Up, I'm also thinking of Looper. You know, that ah, brief, yes. like the story of Bruce Willis and, and his love there. That's also told very briefly, like maybe five minutes. And this, this is the same. Mm-hmm. And over the length of a song in the show, you see the history of the relationship. But we get basically the point being that she had success with him on Broadway and then went to Hollywood to tackle the world and was going to, you know, be big man on campus or big woman on campus, as it were. And it didn't work out that way. And, you know, that happens. That's just cold fact of life. Yeah. Uh, you know, she's also dancing really hard because she actually sweats. I don't think we've seen anybody sweat so far. In oh, the, yeah, in, her bodysuit. Yeah, like, her bodysuit is like she has like the sweat stains. Yeah. Uh, and, and these are, I mean, you know, these are professional dancers. So I'm assuming, I'm not a professional dancer, but I'm assuming that when you're a pro, you can dance without sweating for a while. Yeah. Which is why we haven't seen any of them sweat so but far. But no, she's putting it all into this. Yeah. She wants to express her point. I think she's being as honest as she can, which is what he wants, really, what he's been asking from everybody else. And so, you know, he says, God damn it, fine. You know, go get in line. You know, we'll give this a shot. So Cassie kind of dissipates into the background. Uh, Paul comes back out. You know, one of the things was he just didn't really want to talk about his family. And turns out, you know, he's been ashamed of himself and um, the dancing that he's done. Uh, 
he said he always knew he was gay, got teased in high school, those types of things, and uh, danced at a, a boys' club type of thing and um, wore a bunch of makeup, and his parents saw him there one time, and it was the last he spoke to them, and he could tell they were disappointed in him. And he has a really hard time getting all this out. And this is where we see Zach show the most compassion of the film thus far. It, yeah, the flashbacks humanize him, but definitely this is the moment where you see Mike Douglas really... Because you could be like, oh, well, the flashbacks, that's who he used to be, but he's not that person anymore. But then here, in the present day, he shows compassion and shows that he's human. Well, what makes it so admirable is that, like, yeah, his romantic relationships aside, he may be kind of an asshole, but it's his love of the craft that brought him here. And that's what makes this scene so good is it's not about a race thing, color thing, sexual thing. It's just about it's the love of dance and the love of the craft. And At it, the same time, I will say – and I don't blame because you know, Douglas is only human in the end, so maybe he that explains why he fell for it. I I felt like Paul was just kind of giving him what he wanted to hear, wow. you know what I mean? Like and, and which makes it so satisfying what happens later on. <laughs> so it's karma working. It's karma at work because I think that just his story. It's just, he did I will, have a lot of time to go away and think right, of the story exactly. and make up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, I feel like, like the first time it came to him, he had no idea what to say. Mm-hmm. And then he's like the other guy that said, listen, who wants to hear about somebody complaining about being happy all the time? I have yeah. nothing to say, right? But uh, uh, that guy, by the way, that guy does make it later on. So mm-hmm. I think that because he was being honest. Now, Paul walks away. And then at the very end, once he's had time to hear everybody tell their stories, <laughs> he comes back with the saddest story. Kaiser Soze. Yeah, exactly. I can see just Mike Douglas later after the movie's over. Like his, he, he drops his coffee <laughs> in slow motion. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, it, it felt to me like his story was a little too perfect, a little too like so much better than everybody else's. All right. Fair enough. Um, so We will never know. We won't. We, we missed out on a chorus line part two. Another chorus line. Another chorus line. Uh, it's he tells him go grab a hat and we're down to the final round here of uh, dancing and um, they're doing the famous uh, one singular. <laughs> it's uh, it's the that thing you do of this movie only like. It, <laughs> what are you it, talking about? We hear it like once, <laughs> but over and over and over. It's true. It, it plays consecutively. Like, right. That's what I mean. Like imagine if like that thing you do like all the times that you hear it and that thing you do. It was were like consecutive. The, the jam band version that lasted the last 20 minutes <laughs> right. of the film. Here's like one place, like basically they were doing like rehearsals of their routine over and over. So the song is on a loop and they keep coming in and out in groups. And It's amazing though because immediately Zach is angry at Cassie for being too good. <laughs> yeah, right away. And this is not Vegas. Yeah, it, he tells her to lower her kicks, you know, keep in line. He pulls her off stage at one point and points to the stage and says, is that what you want? And I think this goes back to their romantic relationship involved. I think he wants what's best for her, um, but realizes she needs this work. But, you know, he's going to kind of make her humble about it at the same time because she is clearly better than everyone else on stage. Um, but during this time, we're kind of getting also seeing who's going to be able to really make the cut. Yeah, I mean, we are. It, it's fun because the movie puts us on Mike Douglas's chair here, you know, because we get to see all of them do their routine. And by now, it's down to 16, and we've seen them stand out. We've heard their songs, so we can kind of they're not they don't look the same anymore. Mm-hmm. So as we're watching, going through their go through the routine. We start doing our selection, and we start going like, okay, well, we know that there's four guys and four girls that are going to 
they're going to get picked. So who is it going to be? We're going to weed them out. Yes. And you used, so you start being Mike Douglas. Mike Douglas, you start like, you know, picking your favorites and, and kicking out the people that you don't like in your head. And this is where if you subscribe to Julio's theory, karma kicks in as Paul goes down. Uh, <laughs> he had something wrong with his knee previously and his knee just gives out. And, you know, it, it's all kinds of fucked up. We don't know if it's an MCL, ACL, but, you know, Zach says it's swelling already. And in this amazing shot, like a Vietnam War type movie, um, Mike Douglas looks at Cassie and just gives him the the no. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm shaking my head no right now, but just gives her this look of he ain't going to make it. Yeah. And she says to him, you're going to be fine. <laughs> It was like it's Giovanni Ribisi in Saving Private Ryan. <laughs> just, yes. He asked for more morphine. <laughs> just... Like Vin Diesel, he just pulls the note. You got to give this to my dad, man. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, but then we it's, get... it's funny because, you know, like at first when, when, when he shakes his head at Cassie, my first thought was like, okay, well, he's done. You know, he's not going to be in this show. But then as the the scene played out, I was like, I wonder if he, that was just like, he is not going to dance ever again because he fucked up his knee. You know, that's uh, uh, when he falls, like you hear a noticeable crunch. Yeah. So that sounds, that doesn't sound good. Mm-hmm. He should have just told the story of how he messed up his knee in the first place when, when the spotlight came to him earlier in the, in the movie. It's like Derek Luke and Friday Night Lights where Billy Bob just gives him that look of you're done. Yeah. Um, but then we get kind of a Valley of the Dolls flashback where uh, Sheila has just, you know, these pills on her and says, <laughs> yes. I've been taking these since noon. Gives him a painkiller. And then he's kind of carried off stage because, as we sh- as we know, and people may get hurt, but the show must go on. Oh, yeah. So Paul's out of the picture. Uh, they wrap up the final rehearsal, her final um, audition, as it were. You know, we keep using the phrase getting real, but that's when everyone kind of finally drops their guard and everything is kind of out there and exposed. We learn things like Sheila is actually uh, 40, I think she says, and with a nine-year-old daughter. Oh, she says that she's 40 there? I yeah, don't she, she oh. says her age, and um, she's got a nine-year-old daughter who wants to be a dancer. The other blonde girl informs that she had a mental episode and that you know she was told not to hop back into show business too quickly, and everyone kind of just reveals these faults of their own. And all it took was one of their own getting fucked up. Mm-hmm. But then when they're all done, like, sharing for real mike douglas is like okay paul you can come back on yeah <laughs> he comes in hey <laughs> no uh no i think You've that this is next punk <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh no the that was i think this is the genius of the movie which is that after spending all most of its runtime kind of showing you mike douglas's point of view and how he's just like these fucking actors can't be real no matter what mm-hmm. but then by the time you get here and in you know, Paul gets carried away, and you see him exchange those glances with Cassie, and they've had that conversation earlier, where he tells her you're special, and she says we're all special. Yeah. And then he looks at at everybody else that's left after Paul's being injured, and and then he realizes that well, you know, maybe they are, they are individuals that are special. They could get hurt, and and I'm just a little, I'm as self involved as they are for not noticing in the first place. And that leads to everybody going around the room just telling their their truths. Yeah. Uh, it really, the one thing, the one failure in this movie is, well, there are two, but they're tied together. One, as we kept joking throughout the movie, is that Mike Douglas never sings. Yes. And if there was ever a moment for him to sing was in this sequence. 
Yes, absolutely. When uh, he goes, hell of, hell of a day. day. Yeah, hell of a day was the name of his song. He should have just sang. And and if Mike Douglas was not going to sing, then Larry, the poor poor man's Tim Curry, should have. Yes. They keep cutting to him like he's going to sing. Like something's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. But but no, he just kind of like shakes his head or smiles or you know, and and you never get that. Like I was I was telling you when we were watching this, uh, the only I I hadn't seen this prior to. So if Mike Douglas had started singing. The only thing I could liken it to was when I saw Mamma Mia in the theater. And yeah, Pierce Brosnan? Yes. <laughs> when Pierce Brosnan broke into song, I rejoiced. I threw my hands up in the air celebrating because I did not see it coming. Um, but, you know, speaking of did not see it coming, this what's brilliant about this scene is it lures you into a false sense of security. Oh, yeah. You're like, oh, he's a nice guy now. Yeah. And he says, you know, Larry, line him up. Not just Zach, but uh, Richard Attenborough and you know the, the creative forces <laughs> behind this movie lure you in for one last trick. He goes up there and says, you know, the following, uh, you know, please step forward. And Sheila's in there, and he has this, uh, you know, the selected eight step forward. Yeah, the married couple come forward. Sheila comes forward. Yeah, and then he says, "Those who step forward, I'm sorry." And it's just you know gutting, it's like it's, an ice pick. Yeah, it's like as he was calling their names, they you keep getting close ups of the them smiling shots, and yeah. just stepping forward, and then once again you get their reaction when he's like, "All right, you can go." My notes here just says announcement com, uh, colon ice cold. <laughs> uh, to be fair, before he did the announcement, he he does give a nice speech where he's like, "You're all really good. You're all special. I wish I could cast all of you." Yes. So there's a disclaimer. He's like, I'm not a complete asshole, but apparently back he to does business. because they're all just there at the end anyway. <laughs> yes. um, there were protests outside the theater. <laughs> hashtag not my chorus line. Yeah. <laughs> so he makes it his picks. You know everything's good to go. He says rehearsals will start you now. Don't cut your hair. Yada yada yada. And then we just kind of segue into what I guess is supposed to be the first night or. I'm not sure. I can't, I couldn't figure out, and that's it's, what makes it, this ambiguous. Yeah. Okay, it has to be a fantasy sequence because that's why everybody's there, even the people that's that were I, not cast. Yeah, I was gonna say because it's not it's the full cast, and that would make the most sense that it's like a fantasy sequence right. or just kind of like a like the end of Mamma Mia, where the whole cast is together, <laughs> just kind of like for one last hoorah. It's the end of a. There's something about Mary. Where yes, everybody's singing, oh, God, dancing that's so together. Good. Yeah, and Why it's like, it, do you feel me? <laughs> it has absolutely nothing to do with the actual story of the movie. Yeah. It's just like, hey, let's just have one last song for fun. Uh, and a forty-year-old virgin, same exactly, way. same yeah. thing. Yeah, that is the best part of something about Mary. By the way, is that the oh, uh, did I always going slightly off topic when uh, when they have uh, Ben Stiller in custody, thinking that he's a serial killer. And he has that little bit of that conversation with the cops where he thinks that he's talking about hitchhiker, you know, but getting pulled over for picking up a hitchhiker and they're actually accusing him of being a murderer. Yeah. And that back and forth that goes with him misunderstanding everything they're saying. <laughs> it's like, I'm a big fan of Three's Company. So that to me, <laughs> that kind of misunderstanding is just comedy gold. That and then I don't know why, but I always just will never not be tickled by the I'm working for Rice the San Francisco treat. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's neither here nor there as it applies to the chorus line, but the good news is it's a happy ending. Dream sequence, if you ended up casting everyone, the ambiguity uh, can go to hell. Whatever the case is, it's a fun ending. <laughs> everybody everybody ends up happy. Yes. And, and I think that the message is, well, you know what? They did not get cast on this one, but like Mike Douglas said, they're all special. They'll, they'll you know if they persevere. Particularly great is the closing credits because these all were 
Broadway dancers, the credits use their headshots. They're eight by ten. Ah, yes, yeah, so yeah, yeah. I thought that was quite fantastic. Yeah, everybody gets a mention, not just the people that got picked uh, at the end of the show. It's, were you satisfied with the picks? Were you? Was there somebody that you were hoping would get picked and didn't get picked? Um, I I wanted just for you know the the Randy the Ram Robinson pick. I wanted Sheila. To get yeah, it. I was I was rooting for Sheila too. Yeah. I I felt bad. That was, that's cruel. You don't do that to somebody that's like so much older than everybody else. You don't play those mind games where yeah. you're like, step forward. Okay, goodbye. The old vet. <laughs> and I was kind of surprised after all the hoopla and all the discussion of you know the physical transformation that uh, Val got cast. I, I thought, but well, my Zach Doug knows what sells exactly. Yeah, it's like you need you need a little bit of that and a little bit of that. You need I some mean, tits it, and ass. It takes a sexual tyrannosaur like Mike Douglas to recognize <laughs> one when he sees one. So I think all in all, probably the best way we could have ended this four part series with a really just fun, everyone's happy type musical number with hope. Hope. Yeah, everybody gets to dance, uh, dance, and get dressed in like golden glittery Gold outfits yeah yeah that's that's really good such a shame that really it's not a bigger hit it wasn't better received critically um or financially or financially well yeah that's a shame because really i mean this was this just says franchise to me in the way that you could just have every couple of years just have mike douglas conducting auditions again <laughs> and he's just you know for his new play you have a brand new slew of actors and actresses just dancing and telling their stories and you just do that it's just like you know it could be like a so it'd Kurt, be like the same movie, but just but Mike. different different experiences. It's okay. always Mike Douglas is the, is the you know the thing, and maybe sometimes you get cameos from Cassie because they hooked up you know again gotcha. and and she comes in and like you know so it's like Halloween like Mike you, Myers is the constant in, yeah uh, and then Cassie would be Jamie Lee Curtis kind yes, of coming okay yeah exactly gotcha. but everybody else is new but the story is always kind of the same yeah maybe you know like you always have the tits and ass and then, yeah a chorus line five maybe has like the return of Sheila. <laughs> She's like in her sixties and she's still like you know, going at it. Um, she's Helen St. Clair. Yes. <laughs> oh boy. Uh, it's, it's, it, it, is it time for real yeah, talk? Okay. All right. I was gonna say anything else to add. Let's let's no. move this along. God, I hope I get it. I hope I get it. How many people does he need? God, I hope I get it. I hope I get it. How many boys, how many girls? Look at all the people, at all the people. How many people does he need? How many boys, how many girls? How many people does he I really need this job. Please, God, I need this job. I've got to get this job. All right, real talk, Alex Mattis. All right. Sounds like a plan. So, of course, chorus line, a chorus line, excuse me, released uh, December 20th, 1985. So it was a Christmas release. That was like they were expecting it to clean house. I, I think so. I think it was such a celebrated uh, Broadway piece that, you know, what can go wrong? Uh, but screenplay adapted by Arnold Schulman, budget of $25 million, box office return of just slightly over $14 million. Of course, directed by Richard Attenborough uh, of of Gandhi, uh, Fridge Too Far, Chaplin, a bridge too far, <laughs> Chaplin fame, um, and of course the man Jurassic Park. Yeah, I was going to say the man himself from Jurassic Park, the founder. What was his character's name in Jurassic Park? Uh, uh, Hammond. John Hammond. Uh, yeah, Hammond. Yeah, there we go. Um, okay, again, it was based on the 1976 Tony Award winner by the same name. 
a few quick facts that I found pretty fascinating. Universal Pictures owned the rights to this for five years uh, and then just eventually ditched it and sold it because they couldn't figure out a way to successfully adapt it to a film. And then when it came out, they're like, see? (laughs) Exactly. Like, suck it. Um, Urban Legend, Madonna auditioned for a role in it, but was uh, denied, declined, turned down, as it were, by Attenborough. Um, And as we read, idiot Leah Thompson turned this down to be in Back to the Future. So uh, Uh... jokes on her. And lastly, before you get to your reviews, I found this and we were robbed an incredible film. The role of Zach was originally supposed to go to John Travolta. Oh, <laughs> there is no way they could have cast John Travolta in that and not have him dance or sing. Yeah. I think that we would have gotten the Zach song if Travolta was there. Definitely the flashback to when he was a dancer, because there's Sheila at some point oh mentions it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Sheila mentions that they danced together in the show. So I imagine they did have a scene where Zach was going to dance and Mike Douglas just get no. <laughs> Was he a big name by then, Mike Douglas? Because this is before... Uh, this is two years before Wall Street. Right. So was he... Fatal Attraction. So it's no Oscar-winning Mike Douglas. Was no. he... But was he a name? Like, could he, like... I think he had a presence. I mean, obviously, he would become a much bigger... He was nowhere near Mike Douglas of, like, the early 90s or anything like that. But still, there's always those actors that... You know, Tom Hardy, before he was a name, if someone was like, all right, you're going to dance, he'd, no. Let's go ahead and get them okay. reviews out. Who liked this? <laughs> Let's get the the Red Tomatoes. Uh, Frederick and Marianne Broussat from Spirituality and Practice. A chorus line vividly conveys the anxiety and hopefulness of dancers trying out for a Broadway musical. It's like they just read that out of the press release. Yeah. <laughs> James Platt from Movie Metropolis says a chorus line will certainly give people who think they want a career in dance some idea of what they're up to of whether they're up to the challenge and the rest of the audience will never look at a musical chorus line the same way roger ebert who like i told you he gave it three and a half stars he really liked it uh says the result may not please purists who want a film record of what they saw on stage but this is one of the most intelligent and compelling movie musicals in a long time and the most grown up, since it isn't limited, as so many contemporary musicals are, to the celebration of the survival qualities of geriatric actresses. Well, rest easy, Mr. Eber, uh, but you also didn't like the master, so you, you weren't always right. Uh, finally, uh, Scott Weinberg from eFilmCritic.com says, They did the best they could, dot, 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 which unfortunately isn't all that great. And that's a that's a red tomato. <laughs> Even then, I don't know. But uh, just, did they do the best they could? I mean, this movie was nominated for three Oscars. What? It was film editing, sound mixing, and this kind of answers our question. But earlier, uh, best original song. That song, surprise, surprise, was written for the movie. Okay, that maybe that's why it feels so like out of place. Out of place. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It it just because it's a big number in and it involves everybody in the in, in the line, but really nobody has much to say about yeah. it. So, but it uh, they didn't win for film editing or sound mixing and best original song lost to "Say You Say Me" by Lionel Richie for White Nights, which is that is a great song. So, <laughs> um, man, I I mean, uh, you know, uh, I, I've seen the play. I saw it a long time ago. It's been long enough that I can't really give you a comparison beat by beat of what the movie changed. Uh, I can tell you that, uh, like I mentioned while we were watching the movie, some of the stuff is 
it just feels clunky in the movie as far as uh, some of the the songs, the way that they break them up. Uh, you know, God, I hope I get it. I it plays so very differently from what I remember in the show as opposed to in the movie where it's like... That, it, well, that beat is steady for the first 30 minutes of the movie. Right. But there's something... And I think the main problem is that the the subplot of Cassie, I mean, it exists in the story, in the show, but when the movie, they just highlight it. So they keep cutting away from the musical numbers and from the audition and whatever to to just her backstage waiting for Mike Douglas to say yes yeah. you can come in or like trying to change your flight or you know on the phone or talking to larry or whatever and it's like i think that breaks the tension i think one of the cool things of the show is that obviously it's happening in real time so mm. when you see you're there at the audition from beginning to end and and there's a tension that starts mounting as you see everybody you start getting to know them and then you start getting involved in who's going to get cast and who isn't and that tension kind of gets broken when you keep cutting to Cassie and really favoring her yeah. <laughs> over over the other stories. You know, there's. I, I don't think it helps when like you break away from somebody that's about to tell a story, or you come back and somebody's finishing their story because then it, that instantly marks them as like, oh, you're not that interesting, you're not important. Like like you said in the previous in Contrarian's Corner, yeah, the important ones get their own numbers, yeah. and those are the ones that you're gonna pay attention to, and and. Uh, so in the show, I think that it's a lot easier to get into that mindset and get involved with the characters here because of the of the cuts to Cassie. It, it just breaks away from the magic of being in there and really get into the audition. So I think that's part of it. Uh, the other thing is just that there is an energy that comes from a live performance. There's something that you just experience when you're seeing something on stage, and that is not here. And if you're going to have these really long dance numbers – that take forever. I mean, this movie would be so much shorter <laughs> without dance numbers, but of course the dance numbers are the whole point of it because it's the audition. It's right? an hour 50 and it feels every second. Right. That. I told you, I like, I watched Chaplin and Chaplin is like three hours and it feels shorter than this movie. <laughs> so, uh, it loses that, that that's lost in translation, the energy, the awesomeness of seeing these people perform and audition on stage. When you see them dancing, especially when you're not as connected to them as you are in the play, it just you just zone out, you know. Halfway there are, through, yeah, it, you've nailed every point. That basically the reason I cut you off is because I don't want you to take every single thing that I'm going to say away from <laughs> me. Um, just quickly, I did see that in the play, Cassie does not get cast immediately in the the chorus line. They bring her in eventually, but she doesn't get cast like from the first day. I think it's something they tell in the story, but whatever the case, exactly what you're saying is. There's a reason a lot of really great plays can't be adapted into film. And a big part of it is the ones that rely on dancing, like uh, Hairspray. Mm -hmm. That's more of like a comedy and just kind of the dancing isn't like the biggest part, the singing and all that and whatnot. And the Hairspray is something, you know, you put a wacky enough cast together, Zac Efron, Christopher Walken, John Travolta as a woman, you know, you can do what you want with it. With this, the problem is um, because the people that were – in this movie outside of Mike Douglas were actual dancers and, you know, singers and outside of, um, what was her name? Audrey Landers, Val Clark. Like basically that's why the reason they had to do so many wide shots is because she wasn't a dancer. They just needed uh -huh. her for the looks of the scene. But whatever the case is, good presence and performance on stage does not translate to a good performance in a film. And, and you know, you would think it would, and obviously they thought it would here, but it's, there's so much that's lost in that, and it just becomes kind of almost like, oh, man, this just really isn't working. Yeah, I mean, could it have been shot better? Maybe. I don't know. I mean, uh, 
Because there are moments, by the time we get to the end, mm -hmm. and when they're doing one, and they're doing one over and over again, I think it does make a huge difference that by now we know the characters, because, and, you know, there's less of them, and the routine is, like, over and over, so you can actually pick out, like, who's doing it right, and whenever somebody messes something up, then you can tell, mm -hmm. and, and I actually think... Uh, the actress playing Cassie, she does a really good job of like showing how different she is from everybody else. You can tell her just taking on the number, and you can understand why Mike Douglas keeps telling her to like tone it down. Yeah, you know, because she keeps attracting the the attention uh, of everybody to her. Uh, but, uh, but I don't know if. It feels. I mean, I don't. Know. I don't want to say that the the way it's shot is dated. You know, it's like okay. So how would like somebody shoot it like today? Oh man, there's. It, I, I I don't know if you heard me say this. Like there's several shots in that, and one particular of them driving down into uh, New York City that it may be the same shot that was used in Night Shift by, <laughs> from Ron Howard around that same time. But there's a lot of those '80s style panouts, and there's one where they're doing a shot of. Uh, it's like a zoom out of everyone that's auditioning where obviously they didn't have like the technology they do today where you can see people jumping back into frame to try uh -huh, to make it look uh -huh. tighter. Um, and real quick, just to finish on my point about there's the danger of bringing in people that are great on stage to try to make a play into a film really well. There's also the danger of to cite again, Mamma Mia of trying to load a successful play with the loaded cast and then it still does not translate well or work well at all because um, Mamma Mia is not good. And I I love I think, Pierce Brosnan. I, I think America disagrees with you. I love Meryl Streep. I love ABBA. I'm sure the play is fantastic, probably. I've never seen it, but that movie was not good. Uh, I remember not caring was, much for it, but... Uh, who was... Uh, was it Amanda Seyfried? Yeah. Okay. When we were still trying to make her the it girl, <laughs> she she has a new movie coming out soon with really? uh, with Shirley MacLaine. Yeah, really. Yeah, Shirley MacLaine hires her to write her obituary. Did you see the Amanda Seyfried, Qui Gon Jinn, and um, Julianne Moore movie? No, what? <laughs> it was a movie about like Qui Gon and Julianne Moore were like a married couple, and Amanda Seyfried like seduced them individually. That sounds hot. Uh, yes. <laughs> you don't remember? Oh, it was I'm assuming it's Liam Neeson playing Qui-Gon Jinn. Uh, no, it's, um, it's just Qui-Gon Jinn. Not as hot then. Okay, but there's... You don't know what I'm talking about? No. The, the trailer, like... The trailer had like this shot of Amanda Seyfried heads like her, she starts going down on Liam Neeson and like a telephone booth, and then it just shows his hand getting pressed up against like oh, because the Titanic shot. Yeah, exactly. Oh God, come on. Oh man. I mean, I will watch it. <laughs> Sir, you had my curiosity. <laughs> I don't know, man. It's it's one of those things with this movie. Um, I read like Mike Douglas said, like it wasn't a high point of his career. Neither was it for uh, Richard Attenborough. But it's just like, but it's not. I mean, you know, they. I, I think Attenborough has more to like say, be ashamed of or have like you know Douglas does fine. What else was he supposed to do in this movie? Oh <laughs> I, yeah, especially I think since like I could probably find you a worse Mike Douglas movie than this. Right. I'm like Wall he, Street Two. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. This. I mean, this is fine. He he plays the asshole director well. And then I think that whatever problems I have with the movie are not his performance. You know, it's just like 
I, like those flashbacks are completely unnecessary and just I didn't downright even tacky. Think about it until you mentioned it during the first section. I he comes out in that robe with his hair slicked back. <laughs> what like, the fuck is where going did he come from? Right. Uh, yeah, it's just and and it's so. I mean, maybe if I hadn't seen the the show, I would not. And I'm trying to judge this as a movie on its own, right? But it's like the show obviously doesn't have those flashbacks, and you still understand the backstory. Yeah. So. Why dumb it down and and just put in that stuff that it's not necessary? It doesn't add anything other than just repeating information that you just figure out on your own. Yeah, it's just, and that's my thing too. Having never seen the play or anything like that, I don't, I can't compare the two, and that, so I'm just judging this based on its own merit. And it's just not. I can't even say it's like really poorly made. It's just it, one, it's really dated. And two, I could see just kind of watching it. Also, the big thing we ignored, uh, one of the huge themes is the struggle of gay actors in show business. And while there are characters that say they're gay, they don't at all acknowledge like the struggles they could potentially have because they wanted to make it more family-friendly. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I saw the show a long time ago, so I don't remember getting that. I mean, I remember when the guy came up, uh, when Paul first comes on screen, because you told me, it was like, yeah, they, they kind of like got all the all the gayness out of it. And I was like, I don't even remember what the gayness was. And then <laughs> Paul showed up and I was like, oh, yeah, that character is gay. And they started wondering, <laughs> did they like make him straight in the movie? Uh, but but no, he gets his monologue. And from what I remember, it's kind of like the same in the play. Uh, the other guy that says he's gay and the line. It's almost go, done like for comedic effect. Right. He's just like, I was having sex and it was not good. And then the girl's like, don't you want to do it again? Or do you want to do more? And he's like, no. <laughs> and that's how I figured I was gay. Laugh track. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, but th- there's there's even more. I think that the, the watching the show, I keep going back to the show, though I want to like, mm-hmm. but but I think it's important. It's interesting how that highlights what doesn't quite work in the movie, and that is that I think the show focuses more on what it's like to be a backup dancer in Broadway or a struggling dancer in Broadway, what it's like to be there at the audition, and. Uh, and like I said, that is not as present in the movie because you keep cutting back to all this other bullshit. So I don't remember like the gay element of the story, but mm. I do remember that there's just more of just Mike Douglas is kind of he's not as important in the show as he is here in the movie. Yeah. And that I think that's to the movie's detriment because maybe and I had even this idea in the back of my head that you never saw the director uh, in the show now that I'm thinking about it now, you do see him because you know he has more interaction with uh, with Cassie. But uh, I, I, to me, I think it works best when you don't even see him or you see that silhouette, and it's just about the unknowns, the no names that are out there, just working really hard, and they can get dismissed in a second. Yeah. So uh, that's when the movie shines, and then that's not really what the movie is what the movie's focusing on it it's kind of one of those movies that kind of picks and chooses its path because there's a couple points in time like the sheila story arc like i said it's kind of for that profession kind of like the story of well not even like uh the randy the ram type thing of mm. you know i almost got here one time and now i've just been trying at it again and again and again which that's really interesting um and but then it's just kind of like okay this back to where we were before um now, Morales' number, I think, is a highlight. I think that she's really good. Like the, Most of the numbers didn't work for me. Marx and, is terrible. <laughs> which one's Marx? The uh, guy who like 
went with his sister. Yeah, I can do that, which I remember liking a lot more on stage. So that's that was the thing. Like when I was watching the musical numbers, I remember what they were like on stage, and I was like, it was so much better on stage. But then I would try to just shrug that off because, of course, it would be much better live. That's uh, where that shit differs, is because when you're seeing something on stage, there's easier ways to connect dots than on film, where you have to think about like, and that's what this movie resembled to me, having never seen the play, is that okay, we have these points to hit so we just got to figure out easy ways to get there yeah well also mark's song, and then we have this surprise surprise song <laughs> mark mark's song also gets interrupted halfway through the song we cut to cassie in the office <laughs> it cuts back and he's swinging from a cable <laughs> yes exactly stage. it's like what <laughs> uh so yeah that that didn't work for me but the the morales song about her acting teacher they play it from beginning to end. There's no interruptions. The performance is really good. The song is catchy. Uh, so that one, that works. And then the other, the other one that works is, uh, you know, like I told you, the one at the end, the the big chorus line, chorus line rehearsal. People. Yeah. Dance and dance and dance. And then yeah, the surprise, surprise. I told you this, but just for our faithful listeners. Uh, Greg Burge Ritchie, who sang and performed the song Surprise, Surprise, did the choreography for the bad music video by Michael Jackson, directed by Martin Scorsese. Oh, I did not know that yeah. either. <laughs> <laughs> that it was directed by Scorsese. It led to about a five-minute distraction from the film where me and Julio were trying to remember Michael Jackson's music videos. <laughs> <laughs> which ones were which. Um, and as I was telling you, all this really made me want to do is go back and watch uh, Land of the Lost, which is probably my favorite Will Ferrell movie because this song or movie rather or story plays a part in that. Um, we will eventually have to do that because it is like it's low, <laughs> but my God, that's a great movie. Uh, this one, thirty nine percent. You know, we kind of covered the gambit there of those who liked it, those who didn't. It covered the spread pretty fairly, I thought it. It's pretty lazy. Uh, that's why I can't agree necessarily with what they did the best with what they could. Yeah, but... but At the same time, what could you have <laughs> done much more? I don't know. Well, I, I mean, I think that there's... Uh, I don't know. But, uh, I mean, I guess to begin is I don't think it's terrible. I think... It's not awful. It, the first thing you said when it was over was we've watched far worse. Which yeah, is we true. have. Yeah, the, the, and, and I had it had its moments. Christmas with the Cranks. <laughs> Let's bring it in. <laughs> How do you make it worse? You cast Tim Allen as the director, <laughs> Jamie Lee Curtis as Cassie, and she just keeps tripping and falling on stage, <laughs> chasing a ham. Uh, no, uh, but there's also because I I think that because it actually got me like in a couple of moments. You know, uh, Morales' song, and then that that big after Paul gets injured, in that big moment where everybody really stops acting and just shares, mm -hmm. and you see Mike Douglas really taking it in, and that is the most human. Forget about Paul and when he embraces Paul after his story. I think that to me, the real moment where he looks like somebody I could relate to yeah. is. Right there, when he's looking at this, these fifteen people that are left in front of him, and he, at least in my mind, I'm like, okay, he's seeing them as, as actual human beings that have feelings that could get hurt, and he's about to hurt seven of them. Yeah, <laughs> you know, or eight of them. I guess. Okay, so then they have to have been. It was seventeen of them, I guess, after Cassie joined, because otherwise, yeah. why would he call eight out and then you know? Yeah. So, but anyway. I, I like that. I bought it. Douglas as an actor, I think. 
I mean, it could be entirely possible that I'm reading too much in his performance. <laughs> but to me, that was a key moment, and and I really got it that the fact that they all have like this little moment of silence, and everybody's just exchanging glances, and then he's like, "Hell of a day." Yeah. And unsung hero Larry just has another nod and smiles. I look like Tim Curry. I know. <laughs> I know. My career's over. <laughs> That hair, dude, the 80s for hairdos are just, when he says... Oh, dude, and the outfits that the the women were wearing. Yes. Outrageous. But when, uh, after he cast him, he's like, do not change your hairdo. Like, God, that sucks. <laughs> You're stuck with it. Oh, man. So that rounds out our uh, visit to the show business. The contrarians go to showbiz. That was a fun uh, four-parter there. Four movies I'd never seen before. So All four? Mm-hmm. Was it the player of oh, Entourage? <laughs> Both are Broadway. Okay, you got a big like you know you got some matter. One of those I can guarantee you I will never watch again. <laughs> I I could totally see Entourage playing in the background at a party or something. And no. you just get flashbacks. Yeah, <laughs> this PTSD. Or, or even worse, you find yourself paying attention <laughs> and laughing. Like oh, the second time was a charm. No, uh, all these movies because I remember. You know, the first three had, like, very many points in common of the whole, the plea of the artist trying to see their vision come through. Yeah. You know, it's like in the player, it was the two screenwriters that had that idea, and then they sell out. And Entourage, it was Vinny and how he's like, well, I want to direct now. And then yeah. he gets pushed back from the studio. And then Bullets of Broadway, John Cusack, saying, I'm directing my own stuff now. And then it turns out that he doesn't have the talent to do it. And But here, it's like Mike Douglas, he doesn't. He's the man in power. He's God. So yeah. maybe this is it's a good way it's a to, fitting end note it here. to end it. Right. It's like, okay, so this is what happens yeah. when you have absolutely nothing stopping you. It, it shows because all those other ones, it's like, here's what happens at the, the peak, the, the, uh, the zenith of show business. This is what you deal with uh, when you're on top. And then this is like, okay, if you're just a cog in the wheel, then you have to answer to this one person. <laughs> right. This guy, the, the director who we've been kind of like rooting for, or, you know, and, and the first one, the players, the screenwriters, or whatever, the creatives, mm -hmm. right? You, we've been on their side for three movies. And then in this movie, they're not necessarily the enemy, but they're no longer the underdog. It's realism. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that was another thing that I guess makes an interest. Oh, I, well, my, my, my uh, A Chorus Line story is that when I saw this movie, I was, God, I must have been like 10 at the most. It was playing, my mom was watching it, and I was just playing nearby, and it was playing. And of course, there's not like, there's no sex, there's hardly any cursing. And it was, obviously, it was playing in Spanish. I don't remember if the songs were in Spanish. I'm assuming the songs were in Spanish. But anyway, it was like, it was dubbed, and it was just in the background, but I found myself, like, paying attention. And to mm -hmm. me, as a kid who hadn't, like, experienced anything, it was fascinating to just see, like, the behind the scenes of, like, what happens before putting on a show. You know, now, I've, like, I've seen so many movies like that. that. Of course, this is, like, at the bottom of the of the list. It's There's like an a, Austin Powers movie that literally starts with a behind-the-scenes look at Hollywood. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, uh, but back then, to me, that was like, oh, this is cool. Yeah. And, uh Obviously, I did not know who Mike Douglas was at the time. I didn't know anybody there. But uh, but it's telling that the one thing I remember from watching that, other than the overall plot, was the uh, the ballet song where they're saying everything is better at the ballet or everything is beautiful at the ballet, mm -hmm. uh, which I don't know what it was in Spanish. But I remember just where like... Where is the ballet? <laughs> where is the ballet? <laughs> where is the audition? <laughs> uh, 
I just I just remember the older woman singing and then the other the two younger women joining in in the song and it all kind of you know coming together uh as a kid who hadn't seen much that was kind of impressive and obviously stuck, it just stuck with me because mm -hmm. I still remember later on when I actually watched the play a chorus line I was like oh I've seen this on TV <laughs> um so yeah, that was that was a good idea, Julio. That was fun. Um, even as much as I despise the Entourage movie, uh, I never really complain about watching new movies, and it was um, a good four parter. I'm sad that it comes to an end because it means that uh, <laughs> our, we're past our thirties here on the Contrarians. We're about to go into number forty, which I guess we agreed on quite some time ago is going to be. It's fitting too. Yeah, it is. Uh, this is 40, which fortunately is a gray area episode, so I never at one point have to pretend to be positive about it. <laughs> so It will be, but you know, for the sake of variety, you cannot make the same points in both parts. Oh, I won't. So, okay, good, good. <laughs> It'll just be like in the first half, me cutting down the story of the movie, and in the second half, just <laughs> cursing Judd Apatow's name. Uh, um, it'll be really weird if we both watch it and we end up liking it the second time around. I would doubt it. Uh, you know, I don't know it's it's happened before where i've, I've found worthwhile it's, things in movies i didn't like before yeah, it's a fucking vincent gallo film dude <laughs> like it's you know judd apatow cast paul rudd as himself and then his family in there it's fucking ugh, funny game shit um <laughs> But that, that'll be next time. And then also, uh, we'll probably get two episodes in before that, that'd be about eight weeks. So, um, we'll try to, no, we'll probably get another one in. But whatever the case is, I'm going to WrestleMania in Orlando here in about seven weeks. And we'll do our, um, I guess now annual bonus episode for WrestleMania. And we will be tackling our first documentary where <laughs> I did kind of figure this all out on my own. Uh, I'm going to put together a list of some of the more celebrated pro wrestling documentaries. I'm just laughing because it's like, I'm going to WrestleMania. So we're going to talk about a documentary. <laughs> it's like, people are like, what? <laughs> Missing the connecting tissue there. Oh, I'm sorry. So yeah, as far as, you know, the median of professional wrestling film goes, <laughs> there's not too many celebrated, you know, original works of art outside of the wrestler, um, which that's just too good of a movie. We don't need to cut that down. <laughs> so I'm going to put together a list of uh, the more celebrated pro wrestling documentaries of all time. Send that over to Julio, have him read the synopsis and decide what he wants to do. Uh, you know, beyond the mat, uh, heroes of world class, gorgeous ladies of wrestling. So we'll see what he wants to go with on that. Um, is Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling about Glow? Yeah, it's a documentary on Glow. It's is it is it pretty recent? So good. It's from uh, 2012. Okay, then I think that played at AFF. I just I I wanted to see it, but I didn't get to. It is fantastic. Um, yeah, Beyond the Mat would be kind of fun. Have you have you ever seen that? That was that one uh -huh. from like the late 90s that caused a big hubbub. Um, but now I'll get I'll get you a list over. We could watch CM Punk's documentary, and you can be like, God, that guy's an asshole. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't have to be. Depending on when it falls, I guess it depends on whether it's a good one or a bad one. Or for a bonus, we just don't care about how it alternates. Correct. Okay, so it can be so it can be a really good one or a really bad one. Yeah, or yeah at least yeah. has reception. Well, yes. yeah, that, that, I was more looking for the better ones because okay. there's. I trust me, I've seen a lot of really bad pro wrestling documentaries. <laughs> they don't even show on Rotten Tomatoes. It's just so bad. That... It's just a, like a, the it's the square of the DVD just with a question mark on it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but.
but yeah, that's kind of looking to the future. I don't know what we're going to do for 41. It uh, will need to be a... Well, 41 is the one that you were going to surprise me with. Yeah, correct. That's going to be the surprise one. <laughs> You're like, oh, shit, I have to pull that off now. No, I know. I, I forgot about that, but um, that's going to be a good one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I have a, I have an idea for the future. It doesn't have to be exactly in the 40s or whatever, but and uh, you can cut this out of the episode if it turns out to not be something we want to do. <laughs> But um, remember, I sent you a text with a bunch of uh, uh, female directors in their movies, uh-huh. and that was like because uh, like I, I realized that out of all the movies we've done, we've done thirty nine now. Mm-hmm. Well, all of the with direct- bonus episodes, with, plus bonus episodes, so even more than that, over forty. And I think we only have one movie directed by a woman. Jesus, Black Sheep. I think I think Black mm-hmm. Sheep was the one that was directed by a woman, right? And everybody else is like huge sausage fest. Part of it is because so I started okay so I went from that. Because girls aren't funny. <laughs> not even I think it's because girls are not, or rather girls are polarizing or female directors are in the sense that I started looking for female directed uh, women directed movies and they're all like middle ground so they would all be gray area episodes. <laughs> like Sofia Coppola makes very polarizing films. Well, except for I, I created a list, but you oh, know, okay. Lost in Translation isn't like in the top nineties. Yeah, yeah, like it's like 94, 95, 96, I don't remember. But you but, got you any know, Catherine Bigelow on there? I do. Uh, so Catherine Bigelow, of course, Zero Dark Thirty and, Th- and Her Locker are like in the nineties. Uh, oh, Zero Dark Thirty sucks. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> well, that sounds like an interesting episode. Then <laughs> uh, I really personally, I was rooting for Strange Days, but Strange Days is like seventies, I think. It's uh, not. A, and then uh, uh, Point Break is also like middle ground. Uh, Point Break. That's classic. Yeah, but still, that wouldn't that be fun? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, this is a list that I came up with just from like stuff I could come up with like on my own, and then I looked at my DVD collection to see what I had that could give me like some ideas. Uh, I looked up online and I came up with like a lot of like a few names uh that i didn't recognize and i was like well that merits like further investigation mm-hmm. uh but also i guess i want to do this as a shout out to listeners because if you have a movie that you'd like us to do that's by a female director that's either really high or really low on the tomatoes then that's good but this is what i have so far as far as like female directors so i got Catherine hartwick you know who that is mm. uh well i mean mostly no i guess by the original twilight Okay. Which is not as low as I would like it to be for us to like <laughs> talk about it. Um, it's also, but she, the first time I heard about it was from 13, which is a movie about two 13 year old girls. And I liked it a lot, but it's just kind of like middle of the ground on Tomatoes. Um, and then she did Little Red Riding Hood, which is, that, is really low on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, with uh, Evan Rachel Wood and yes, that's who Nikki was, Reed. Yeah. yeah. Um, then, uh, of course, Nora Ephron. Which I know you brought Michael up before, and Michael is like rotten. Uh, with uh, uh, with Annie Travol- McDowell and Travolta. <laughs> Travolta, yeah, oh, wow. that's rotten. Uh, even more so, though. I don't know why I went immediately to Annie <laughs> McDowell instead of Travolta. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and John Hurt. You didn't even mention John Hurt. Oh goddamn! That's a triangle. Yeah. Uh, but she also did Bewitched. Which oh, is at like with Nicole Kidman and Will Ferrell. Yes, yeah. really low on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, it, but I love Nora Ephron like, as a screenwriter, and I know I've seen like movies of hers that I like. But you know, uh, then of course Catherine Bigelow, Zero Dark Thirty, and The Hurt Locker it seemed like the most like mm-hmm. were, that would fit our format. Nancy Myers, uh, The Holiday with uh, Kate Winslet, Jack, Jack Black. Black. Yeah, that's like middle of the ground, which is a shame because that's a you know movie you could do. Father of the Bride, I think it's 
it's like fresh, but it's also like middle of the ground. But it's like Nancy Myers is like a big name, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kimberly Pierce, Boys Don't Cry. I've never seen it, but it's like her freshest movie, and it's like I think it's like ninety, maybe. Uh, she also did the new Carrie with your girl. Uh, oh man, if we did that, we would have to have Eddie on because me and him have had spirited discussions about, about Carrie. That. Yeah, really? I didn't even oh, know dude. that he had seen the the, yeah, the remake. He, he really liked it, and I not so much. Oh, I thought that you hadn't seen it. No, I, it was one of the last movies I watched at the old three seven seven. Do you remember a movie called Stop Loss? Channing Tatum. Do, I don't remember who the main character is. It might be jo- Joseph Gordon Levitt. Like a war movie. Somebody yes. goes AWOL. Yes, I remember uh, at three five nine in Denton. I remember <laughs> building the standee for it. Uh, yeah, that's that's Kimberly Pierce. Sophia Coppola, of course. Lost in Translation. All her other movies are pretty middle of the road. Uh, Julie Tamer. I'm saving across the universe for a for a middle for a gray area episode. <laughs> that might be our fair 60, enough. Or fifty or sixty. Uh, she also did Titus. I thought fifty was going to be American Hustle. That's true. Yeah. So it has to be. Uh, no, no, no. Fifty can't be American Hustle because that's not a gray area episode. Ugh. So it has to be forty nine or fifty one. Okay. <laughs> and we have to find a way to Skype Chaz into the conversation. <laughs> Karin Kusama from uh, most recently The Invitation, which I really like. But that's not high enough for us to do it. However, she also did Aeon Flux, which we mentioned a few Ooh. episodes ago. That's 10% on Run Tomatoes. That is too so, high. So that could we could do that. Jillian uh, Armstrong, she did Little Women. Um, I own Little Women. That's how I know this. Uh, Penny Marshall, she directed Big, which you know is yeah. high. She also did A League of Their Own. Nicole Holofcener, Holofcener enough said. Lexi Alexander. Really, not as high or as low as I would like it, but she did Punisher Warzone and Green Street Hooligans. And she... Um, She's doing TV now, mostly. She, uh, most recently, I think she was assigned... Uh, she signed on to the project for the Chris Benoit biopic. Really? Yeah. Uh, that I did not know. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, Jodie Foster, uh, which... Thank you, sir. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, here's the thing. She's also like her highest rated movie on Rotten Tomatoes is Little Man Tate. And that's like 76, 77%. I haven't seen it, but that was her first one. Uh, I really, and then more recently, she has Money Monster, The Beaver. Uh, but they're oh, not. She directed The Beaver? Yeah. Mel she's Gibson. in it, right? Yeah, she's in yeah. it. Uh, she is, uh, but that's mostly like that's middle ground. And also, middle ground is Home for the Holidays. But I kind of want to push for Home for the Holidays to be our Thanksgiving movie this year. Which one is home for the holidays? Uh, uh, it has uh, uh, Miss Fantastic. Is that what she's called? What she's called? Jessica Alba? No. <laughs> From the Incredibles. Uh, oh, Miss Incredible then, uh, or Mrs. Incredible? What's her name in the in the? Is Mr. Incredible, and then his wife. What's her code name? Is it Mrs. Incredible? Elastic Girl. Uh, it's been quite a while. But since you know, Holly Hunter. Okay. Okay. Holly Hunter. We'll, we'll edit that. Holly Hunter, Robert Downey Jr., a uh, bunch of other actors. It's good. Or at least it's good for an episode. Uh, but anyway, so that's like, I'm sure there are other movies directed by women that, well, obviously, there are other women. I was about to say, there's, there's plenty of other movies directed by women. No, but I would say that fit our criteria. Yeah. So that's that's the hard part, to find something that's either really high, really low, or on tomatoes. So again, if you are a listener that just... Those are heard called me. arms. Yes. If you just heard me run down this list and you're like, well, did not they did not mention this, 
look it up in Rotten Tomatoes first. <laughs> Don't make a fool of yourself. <laughs> and then send in the suggestion. And then we can like add it. Because then I think that a few episodes down the road, maybe we can have like a four a four part like women director series where we have two really high rated and two really low rated. Um probably I mean I'm I'm itching to take down Lost in Translation. <laughs> so it can be one of them. Uh and then apparently you have something against Zero Dark Thirty. It's not good. <laughs> oh, it's just that. Okay. Yeah. It, it, it's not bad. It's just, it's okay. All right. So, uh, plugs. Yeah. I was going to say the future looks bright for the contrarians. As far as plugs go, um, I'll go ahead and kick this off. Uh, first off, kind of worked my way, uh, just putting some on his background noise this week. Um, a few months back, I rewatched the first season of Community. I forgot how good it was oh yeah i know i hear you I, I saw like a few episodes from season two i think uh the other day i was about to say and the other day i was just kind of bullshitting around and i had season two on as background noise for the duration of my day and specifically the finale the two paul paintball paintball episode oh my god it's so good so number one yeah if you never watched community to begin with at least the first two seasons and then the beginning of season three Episode four, season three, is one of the best episodes ever. Which was that? That's the alternate timelines episode. Oh, but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah I saw, because um, Kelly had it played on in the background, and uh, I just got hooked again. And it was the D&D episode, which I don't know if it's second or third season. Second. Second. Fat okay. Neil. Yes, Fat Neil. And it's just so good. Everything. I already knew everything that was going to happen, but it's been long enough since I've seen it that I didn't remember the details. Dude, the, the part where it's like the slow-mo of Annie and Abed acting out the sex <laughs> the between sex, yeah, them. Yeah. I had forgotten that the big reveal, and I'm sorry, it's still funny even if you know this, but... Uh, is that that Jeff came up with the with the name Fat Neil, yeah. <laughs> and when he finds out, he's like, "Well, why didn't you like you know?" He's like, "Well, there's another Neil, and he was standing right next to you, so I had to say Fat Neil." And he's like, "Why didn't you just call him Skinny Neil?" <laughs> uh, so yeah, that's good. I saw that one, and then I guess it's season two as well, the one where uh, it's like a big dance. Like I remember what the main plot is, but one of the plots is that Abbott and Troy are going after the same girl. Mm-hmm. And they go up and tell her, okay, we're going to hang out with you for the entire dance, and you're going to pick one of us. And then she picks Troy, and he's like, okay, well, that's not cool because you should have picked Albert because Albert is so awesome. <laughs> so, and uh, and the other subplot is Britta is, has befriended this girl because she thinks that she's a lesbian. She thinks that the girl's a lesbian, and she's like, well, it's so cool to have a, a, a lesbian friend. And the girl I thinks think the same Britta's thing. A yeah, she yeah. Thinks that, and then they get on the dance floor. And they're both straight, but they're dancing very suggestively with each other. And they end up, like, kissing. And then they realize they're both straight. It's just, uh, yeah, it's really good. That show had lightning in a bottle for a pretty uh, a good stretch there. Yeah, I mean, it's it kind of like, you know, everybody, I think, that I can think of it, like, involved in the show kind of, like, moved on. Obviously, I mean, uh, what's his name? The played Pierce. He, that's, uh, that wasn't, like, the Jim beginning Chase. of his career or anything, yeah. you know, and... But, you know, it, I, I see everybody else and other stuff. And I'm like, oh, okay, you know, there was life after community. <laughs> yeah. That's cool. That's that's a go-to a lot of times for arguments when people talk to me about how incredible Chevy Chase is. It's like, well, he was on one season of what turned out to be the most important show in American television history. <laughs> and then he got an ego that was too big for it. And then he wound up on a failing television show. So <laughs> you tell me. Um, and then speaking of television shows, now, uh, as I text you today, I did one of my rare things where I started something just completely cold, not knowing too much about it. And I watched, I binge watched the first season of you're the worst from FX Mm -hmm. and my God, amazing. 
the first two episodes, I was kind of like trying to figure out what the vibe of it was and things like that. Um, but it is so good that first season. And I texted you, I thought it was probably my favorite show that I'd watched since the office in terms of just fresh general content. Uh, and then I started the second season and it, I'm already kind of, I'm not redacting what I said about the first season, but it seems like in the second season, it does what my number one, you know, no, no is in terms of television shows is uh, where a character has a certain trait and then they turn it up to 10,000. Just to oh. like, um, the most prime example I can always come to is on the office with Kevin, how he was always kind of dumb. <laughs> Did they make him like complete idiot? Which it all worked and it culminated in that incredible bit of where Dwight convinced Holly that he was retarded. <laughs> and and she treated him like it for like a, se- a sustained stretch on the show, which was genius. But then eventually they just turned him into like, you know, he couldn't f- like figure out how to open a door and things like that, right, which right. was just ridiculous. Well, this is what happens in a way. It happens uh, to Joey and friends, you know, where yeah, he goes exactly. from being like, he's a little dumb, but he can function as a human being. And then, you know, it's just like he got a lobotomy mm-hmm. at some point during the show. And then, yeah. I it's understand. part of the reason the second season of Eastbound, that's the one that like if I if you could just suck that out of the series, I, it would be perfect. But that second season being there kind of hurts its legacy to me because they kind of um, – they kind of overdo Kenny just kind of like that same way. And then they kind of realize, okay, got to tone it back and figure out exactly. But whatever the case, um, there's a character on the show, Lindsay, who's the main female character's best friend. And they just go really overboard with it. Regardless, the first season, oh my God. And Julio, I need you to go and watch it. It's only 10 episodes. (laughs) It's an easy thing to get through. It's so funny and so well-written. So my plug for this week is that uh, you're the worst. It's on Hulu. Um, And then in addition to that, Started doing podcasts on NPR, uh, pop ca- uh, pop culture happy hour, and some, oh, I've heard of that one. Yeah, it's really good. It's really simple. And then uh, it's that pop uh, pop culture happy hour is like twenty minute episodes, so they're really easy to get through. And then there's Cinema Junkies on uh, NPR as well. Now those are big, like two hour podcasts, so they're a bit of a commitment. But those are are my plugs. I don't mind like long. Po- I think I used to mind them before, and now I don't. I mean, I I used to have, I guess, more of a problem with like. Stopping and starting again, and now not really many of the podcasts I listen to. Yeah, maybe that's part of it too. Uh, Because you know, uh, to me, like the ideal one used to be like something I can just listen, obviously, in one sitting. So if I can listen to it while I'm driving to work, Mm -hmm. my drive to work can be long sometimes. You know, that's perfect. But now I'm just like, no, I'm I'm fine stopping. And I mean, you know, if I need to find like a good stopping place, I can wait like a couple minutes. Yeah. And I honestly, I load my phone full of just different podcasts to listen to. So a lot of times. If I find my mind wandering about a certain one, I can just switch it over to another one or switch it to music for a little bit and then come back to it. Yeah, so. yeah. I mean, I think it's not the length. If I if I start getting bored with the podcast, it's not because it's long. It's just because the people that are doing the podcast are just not keeping my interest. Yeah. You know? So my favorite podcasts, I don't care how long they are. I, I'll keep listening because I like, obviously, listening to these people. Dude, um, it's like an Attitude Era podcast. It's one of my favorite podcasts. And they're like up to like three-hour episodes. Uh-huh. And so... <laughs> Obviously, if you're into something, they can sustain your support and attention. So, yeah, uh, I have uh, one plug and one replug, a sort of replug. So, my plug is uh, uh, Marcus Monroe, who is. Here's the thing: I don't like Twitter. Okay, but but it but it works sometimes. So, I'm about to tell you a story that proves that even though I don't like it, sometimes it, it still works. Which is when Twitter's people, awesome. <laughs> well, when people on Twitter add you. 
for no reason. You're like, okay, so this person added you, added you, and you're like, huh, is this somebody that listens to the podcast or somebody that's a friend of a friend or whatever? And you look and you're like, I don't know who this person is. Why oh, do they, yeah. you know? And I'm like, oh, maybe somebody that read my twist, my my tweets, and they found him funny, you know, through a retweet or something. But then you check and you're like, oh no, this person just added me because they were hoping I would check their profile and mm-hmm. then be like, oh, okay, well. You look interesting, so yeah. I'll add you and, you know, whatever. And so 99% of the time, that just makes me angry because <laughs> I'll check the person's profile. And one, it's already annoying that I'm like, okay, I've just like one of like a thousand people that they automatically followed, yeah. you know? And two, they didn't even bother to like check what I do or what my timeline is all about or whatever. Because, you know, to me, it would be 100% different if you added me and then you send me a, te- a, a message saying, hey, by the way, Whatever. And then we have a conversation. I understand what was your thought process behind this other than I'm just going to send a blanket follow to yeah. like a bunch of people. Right. Uh, so with that out of the way, though, this guy did that thing. Uh, Marcus Monroe. Like I got added by Marcus Monroe. And I'm like, who is this guy? <laughs> and I check. And it was like, okay, his his bio is interesting. And his tweets looked interesting. And he had a thing. that. Uh, so basically, he's like a performer. And uh, and he had a thing. Like his the most recent tweet that was the one that showed up when I checked his timeline was like, Something about like juggling stuff on fire. I'm like, well, I gotta see this, <laughs> so I click on it and I watch the video, which is like, I think like five minutes, seven minutes. I don't know. And it's literally him like performing on stage, and he has like a table, and uh, and he just like he has three things. He'll be like, all right, notebook, bottle, iPhone, and he sets them on fire, and then he starts juggling them. <laughs> I mean, he's wearing gloves, obviously, uh-huh. so you know it's not like this crazy thing, but it's still kind of dangerous. You're like throwing things up in the air that are on fire, could fall in your head, yeah. and. Uh, he juggles them. So he juggles them for a few seconds, then he throws them away, gets another set of three things, and he's like, all right, now, uh, computer, mouse, flowers, sets them on fire. And juggles. <laughs> it's, it shouldn't be as entertaining as it is, but it, it, like I was watching, I watched the entire video, and I was like, huh? <laughs> <laughs> so then I sent him a message, and I was like, hey, I just watched you juggle shit on fire for like however many minutes. I think that you need to listen to my podcast so that we're even... <laughs> And he replied, which is another key thing, because, you know, if you're going to add me and kind of like ask for my attention, Mm -hmm. then let's have a dialogue and, you know, just and uh, but he replied and we had a little back and forth. And then it turns out that he's coming uh, to do like a show in Austin. And unfortunately, it's like on the 23rd of February Mm -hmm. and uh, I'm going to have to work that day. So I, I can't go. But anyway. I'll put the link to his like little juggling video because I found it really amusing. And nice. I guess if this episode comes out before the 23rd and somebody wants to go see him juggle shit on fire, because I guess that's what he's going to do in Austin, uh, just go for it. I think that it's actually like a free show. You can just go and show up. It's somewhere on campus. Nice. Uh, so that's my plug. My replug is, you might remember, back in our uh, uh, Little Shop of Horrors episode, I plugged Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which at the end was just like winding down from the first uh Season. I, I think follow maybe... you on Twitter. I, I know. How oh yeah, you you've heard this. me. Like, yeah, I'm plugging the fuck out of it because it's. Well, they did. They're in a deal with Netflix now, where uh, that special CW deal, where as soon as the season ends, like a, a week after, mm-hmm. they go up on Netflix, so you really can catch up as soon as the season is over. So last season ended a couple of weeks ago. It's on, on Netflix now, and it's just like, and I'm so happy because it ends on a cliffhanger, and they already renewed them for the third season, even though the ratings this season are lower than the first season. And basically they, they interviewed the president of the CW That's and he's wild. like, yeah, he's like, well, at this point we don't care about the ratings. We just like that. It's, it's a good show. The critics love it. It makes the CW brand 
something special. The fact that so that's why we're continuing to support it. And they've said the the creators have said that it's a it's a four season story. So all we have to do is get one more renewal, and then we're gonna get the full thing. And oh, so wow. I'm really excited. But really, like the real plug, because I've already plugged this and I plug it everywhere, right? The crazy girlfriend. But the start of the show, which is also the creator, co-creator, co-writer, and everything, is Rachel Bloom. So if you go to YouTube and you see like her YouTube channel, she has obviously all the Crazy Ex-Girlfriend videos, but then she has videos that she also did on her own before Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, and she was also doing that thing where she'll do musical numbers for like funny stuff. And uh, last night I watched one that was called, I think it's Jazz Fever, and uh, it's just so fucking funny. Like, so she plays like like a girl at a jazz club, and she's like an easy girl, and she's singing about how like jazz musicians are like super hot, and how how hot it is to be at this place. And basically, she's talking about how she hooks up with a bunch of people, and then of course she gets sick, and she goes to the doctor, and the doctor is like, "Oh yeah, you have syphilis," and she <laughs> <laughs> and she's like, "No, I have jazz fever, or whatever the song." called and you know so she refuses to believe that she's actually sick and she's more like the cure for jazz fever is more jazz and she keeps going back to the to the bar <laughs> it's dude it's so good and it just i don't know i at this point after two, se- two seasons of crazy girlfriend and seeing like a bunch of videos of her being funny and other things mm-hmm. i just it, i am so in awe of her talent and i'm like anybody that you know just I mean, I can see people like just not getting it because they're not trying it, you know? And then it's like if you watch her videos and you're like, okay, that's not for me. Okay, that's fine. You know, because maybe musical humor is not your thing. Or maybe yeah. she can be really vulgar. So, you know, okay, I'm she's too vulgar for me or whatever. But but you can't tell me that she's not talented. Yeah. And it's just uh, it has nothing to do with her being a woman or, you know, whatever. It's just the fact that she's just like a really funny person. And uh, I don't know. I just think that she deserves even more attention that she's getting right now. So. That's my my replug sort of alternate plug. I like it. Um, as always, festive years. Uh, their album "Don't Let Me Lo- Don't Let Me Use You." <laughs> that's, how many times have we like missed out on that? I think that's <laughs> like the one of our quirks. We're we're always gonna hit the note, the note there. But uh, opening track, um, our last stand. Closing track, summer of ninety nine. Um, be sure to check them out. They're in Bandcamp. Okay. By now, they might be on iTunes. We should check. I haven't talked to Chris in a while. Okay. Well, we still appreciate it. We're on iTunes. Rate, review, subscribe, as always, and that's, uh, that's in the opening message. There, yes. So. What's not in the opening message is our email address. Mm-hmm. We are the contrarians at gmail.com. This is where you will email us your suggestions <laughs> for female directors and also where you tell us how much you hate uh, A Chorus Line. Because it's not like or the show. Yeah. Or maybe you love it because it's just... Because it's not like the show. <laughs> exactly. Um, or maybe you just love Mike Douglas when he was young. As you should. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, and also... Well, you can also tweet at us. Mm-hmm. That information is also at the opening. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's it, I think. We have tackled show business. We have tackled show business. And we have come out better men and better podcasters because of it. Yes. Next time, it'll be the American family. Ugh, God damn it. <laughs> That will wrap up this quartet, this uh, series, saga, as it were, of the Contrarians. Uh, We are right, you are wrong, and we will catch you next time. Why?